you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. I'm your host, Pro Football Hall of Fame journalist, Andrea Kramer. This podcast takes you to a place very few people have ever been, inside the NFL Films Vault, where we get to explore some of the greatest interviews Steve Sable ever did in his five decades as president of NFL Films. I met Steve in 1984, when I became the first female producer at Films. Steve was my boss and mentor, And every week, this is such a passion project for me because I get to present these conversations for you, raw, unedited, and in their entirety for the first time. I'll be providing some context and insights along the way. Today, we head to 2007 for Steve's interview with Saints head coach, Sean Payton. Sean Payton leaves the Saints, he's not calling it a retirement, after 16 seasons, with the fifth highest winning percentage amongst current coaches. Last season was Payton's first ever as a head coach without Drew Brees. Remember, they're a combo that ranked in the top five in points in the NFL in 10 of 16 seasons. As a point of reference, in 2021, due to injuries, Payton had to use four different quarterbacks who collectively did not produce the numbers Breeze did in even his weakest years. That could force any coach into a hiatus. The interview you're about to hear took place following Peyton's first year as head coach, a season in which they finished 10-6 and and began the rebirth in New Orleans in the aftermath of Katrina. Remember that following the 2005 devastation of Hurricane Katrina, the Superdome was closed for nearly a year. In the fall of 2006, Peyton, Breeze, and the Saints brought football back to New Orleans. We're going to hear Peyton talk about the remarkable impact that they had both on and off the field in New Orleans, but we begin talking about one of our more recent podcast subjects, Bill Parcells. You see, just prior to taking the job with the Saints, 
Peyton was with Parcells in Dallas for three seasons as assistant head coach and quarterbacks coach. Their close relationship continues to this day, and Peyton learned a lot from Bill, including something about cheese. That's right, you heard me correctly. Let's go to the vault for Steve Sable and Sean Payton. Oh, well, we, we're, we're rolling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what, what is the expression, don't eat the cheese? What is that? That's mean? Parcells, I stole it. It's, uh, it's, it's just making sure that you don't start reading about how good you are and you don't uh, spend all week on last week's win that you get on to the next game. And, and because, you know, I think in our business, you know, it's either all the way over here, you're doing fantastic or, or boy, there's, there's a major problem here. There's nothing in the, in the middle. And so oftentimes you are in the middle or maybe you've won two or three games in a row and you're trying to uh, put together a good run and then the reports come, you know, where, boy, they're, they're just doing fantastic. They're going to be in the NFC Championship. You know, so you just try to... Don't eat the cheese. Don't eat the cheese or you get fat. And and, uh, and that was something that uh, that Bill spent a lot of time talking what else, about. What other things, what other, what kind of an influence did Parcells have on you? He, he helped me tremendously. It's different than a clinic or an interview or when you're there for three years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, put the pencil down in the, in the notes and just watch and how he dealt with everyone in the building, the trainers, the equipment people, how he managed the coaching staff, mm-hmm. what he was looking for in a corner, what he was mm-hmm. looking for in a tackle, how important, you know, he felt the, the well, offensive line. What did you line. learn from Ted? Because, you know, he's got that real acerbic kind of a wit. Yeah, yeah. You know, people... He's I pretty think- sarcastic, and, and, and I think sometimes I might be too with the players, but... He connected though with the, with the players. I mean, he had an ability to make you smile and laugh, and it wasn't just all bark, you know, uh, or all bite. He was someone that uh, could get you going, and he found a way to to kind of hit the right buttons with each player and each coach and and everyone from the the what, assistant equipment guy. What did you think, Sean? When he has that rule that he doesn't let assistants talk to them. I understand that. I, I do you do that? I do that. Um, now, in the offseason, we have an open-door policy with, with the coaches. It really is from the start of the season to the end of the season. And it's just trying to reinforce one voice. And I never felt, as an assistant, it was a deterrent to me advancing. or it. it I actually, it, it, it was a little bit of a relief because I didn't have to worry about being misquoted after a game. Or I didn't have to worry about, boy, how was I going to talk about how the quarterback played? Is Is it what Bill wanted me to say. Yeah. And so, well, it was much easier not to have to talk at all. And it was really the one voice in the season. And, and I think it, it's something that, uh, that we've, we put in yeah. place in New Orleans. And I think our assistants appreciate that. When I want to talk about play calling, because I think even though you've just been a head coach for one year, that's been sort of an area that everybody talks about you being a great play caller. And the word that I hear used to describe your play calling is ruthless. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I think when you're successful and you win games, uh, it's kind of like the quarterback position. Uh, you know, oftentimes it's easy to say, boy, you know, that player gets a lot of the credit and that coach did a great job calling, calling a great game. And then when you don't have success or you lose, a lot of times that criticism falls maybe on the quarterback or it falls on the play caller on either side of the ball or the head coach. And it's, kind of part of the deal, but 
you know, I, I think all the time you're trying to evaluate, hey, are we giving our guys a good opportunity to be successful? Mm-hmm. Not only. Well, what do you think that that adjective would apply to you? I mean, you're, you're, that you're going to go for the throat, the juggler, that when you see an opening, you go for it right away. We want to be aggressive, uh, and I think that a lot of teams probably take the same philosophy we do. I mean, I think it's important to, to convey to your team, hey, we're going to be aggressive in this game. Now, some weeks maybe more so than others, and if we feel like we're playing someone where our margin of error is is very slim, then 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 we we've, we're going to take a, an aggressive approach. And so sometimes I think that that comes from specific down and distance calls. You know, if you decide mm-hmm. to run an end around on fourth and inches, mm-hmm. you know, someone might look at that as, boy, that was an aggressive call. And we may have felt as a coaching staff that really we're going to get a yard with this play, maybe more. And in the win, uh, the win loss gain there was was worth the risk. No. When you were calling plays for Bill, he he has that expression. I've heard him. You don't get the virus. What does he mean when he was telling you that, that would tell? Did, I, I assume I, he, I, Bill is is there's a there's different strains of offenses in our league, and uh, you know I was brought up with with John Gruden at Philadelphia in that West Coast right. system, and so that's kind of a different tribe than maybe the. Bill's system. And, it, and so as I came in, I was kind of that outsider. You know, I was the half Irish, half Italian guy in the mob. So I really could never be a made guy. You know, I could only go so far. And be, but you brought up, you know, you were a West Coast guy. You stop here. And uh, so he he would kid me about too many plays. And the virus was that was that uh, flu-like symptom of wanting a lot of offense and not being able to practice at all. And I appreciated that. I did an interview with Lombardi. It must have been, I was like 25 years old. And it, wasn't, it was a situation similar to this. And I asked him about coaching. And he said, and these were his exact words, and you can imagine how this shocked me when I heard. He said that to be a great coach, you have to be one half teacher, one half SOB. You think that still holds true? I think you have to be tough. Uh, I do think you have to be a great teacher, and that hasn't changed. Uh, but I think you have to be demanding. I think what's what's important is your ability to, to be fair and putting that first as opposed to trying to give the illusion you're being fair. And that's kind of served me well as an assistant in, in my first year as a head coach of really trying to do what's right. Uh, I think the players appreciate honesty. I think being direct and, and confronting players is a good thing. And Bill taught me that. Uh, he was real good about confronting uh, the the seventh round pick all the way to the, your high priced mm-hmm. quarterback or linebacker, and he wasn't afraid of confrontation in, in at all. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he probably preferred it. And you know, I, I've I've found where that's helped me some in my first year of, mm-hmm. of of directly confronting problems and not trying to move on and and kind of erase them away. I think that's important. As a head coach now, do you ever sense that you're trying to micromanage things now because you were an assistant and there's so many things that you understand that you want to say? Like, when we had you, Mike, you spent about five or six minutes in the pregame talking about the music. It drove me nuts. <laughs> it drove me nuts. So, yeah, I want to change all that. And, and uh, you know, maybe... What, what, what was music that you didn't like? It was, was the that? 70s. The guy in charge of the music was... It was his... His error. The guy was in charge. It was like, you know, who's the DJ? Well, I'll tell you what the music's going to be. And we're walking around out there, and I'm thinking to myself, who who put this on? Well, I know who put it on. He's not going to be in charge of the music next week. (laughs) We're going to have a new meeting here. And 
there are a lot of little things, I think. That's an interesting thing because Gruden has always been focused on that. I mean, he'll start out with me. Uh, Jimmy Mora had a whole big scene in the middle of the hill about, about the meat. Why do you think that's so important? I mean, I, it's, just one, it's just one aspect. It might be uh, the music. It might be, you know, how the locker room layout was. Uh, you know, what's, what's the backdrop for the post-game press conference? I don't like the way that looks. Uh, what's all those things uh, we try to make sure it's just how, and I have a picture maybe in my mind over 15 years of what I think it should be. And in the case of what the pregame music. Well, what did you change it to? I, I, I wanted the players to have input. Tell me what you want to hear because ultimately that's what it's for. I'm not interested. Now I'll put a couple songs in there I want to hear as well. Yeah. Two or three, but I want it to be what they want. And, and, and uh, I got the feeling in that first preseason game that that was one of the things. It was the first time I'd heard it, and I thought, well, who picked this? It's our home game. <laughs> It'd been different if it was at Dallas. So we got that changed. Now, what about the visor that you wear? Where, where does that come from? Because we were thinking, we were looking at, you know, Spurrier wore a visor. Sean Payton wears a visor. Gruden wears a visor. And I've seen Gruden wore it in that snow game up in, you know, New England. Where does that come from? Is that a conscious decision, or is that something you just grab? I, it started play? probably with me just grabbing it, and and uh, you know it's something that I probably wear a lot in the summer times when we go to the beach, and so. But well, it isn't a superstition thing. No, now after a while, there's certain things in regards to you start winning. You you know you want the same visor, the same jacket, but you know I know when we played in Chicago in the NFC Championship game, as cold as that was, the visor had to go, and I had the ears covered. So. But it, it's something I feel comfortable wearing, and, and uh, outside of that, it's uh, it's uh, it's sitting in my locker before the game. I put it on, yeah. so probably that than a hat. But it's interesting how certain how superstitious coaches are. We did a long time ago. Again, we did something with Alabama, and we're in the locker room, and Bear Bryant is taking all, he has the, and the shirt and taking everything off, and he's got a T-shirt on, big big hole in the T-shirt. I said, Coach, you know, what's it? He said, it reminds me of when I was in Morro Bottom and we had no money and he wore this T-shirt with a hole in it, you know. And I just figured that, that, that and I've noticed some of a lot of other players and coaches have suit. Do you do anything like that? Is there something I, that you, you're the, putting in your no, message for me, it's, shoe for or me, something it's, like that for me, that reminds it's, you? It's the, it's the juicy fruit gum. You know, I've, I got one pack a game, five pieces, one for each quarter, then one right when you need it, you know, and if, and if a quarter's going bad, that piece is going early. Now, now I'm behind. I know that I've got four left and I've got three and a half quarters, so I don't have that full piece for overtime. So, you know, if I'm on the same piece in the first half and I'm into the second half, I've carried it into the third quarter the same piece. That's a good thing. If I'm on piece like three or four into the second quarter, we're not doing well. The Juicy Fruit story is even more absurd if you know what transpired during the 2009 NFC Championship game. I'll try to keep it brief, but here goes. So. During pregame, a ball knocked over Peyton's supply of Juicy Fruit and, wait for it, mixed it with other flavors. Spearmint, Winter Fresh, Double Mint, and Big Red. I cannot believe I'm talking about chewing gum here. None of which were preferred by Peyton. Now, at this point in his coaching career, Peyton had gone from one stick per quarter to one stick per drive. So as the Saints are driving in the fourth quarter against the Vikings, Peyton is handed... A stick of spearmint gum. His reaction, well, he already told you how he felt about music. Imagine how he felt about his own chewing gum preferences. So, profanity alert. Can you get me fucking juicy fruit? Not fucking spearmint. 
Thank goodness the world returned to his axis and Peyton got his juicy fruit gum. The Saints went on to defeat the Vikings and everyone lived happily ever after. (laughs) When we come back, Sean and Steve get into Peyton's decision to take the job in New Orleans in the first place. Stay tuned. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game, King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of it. Like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. He's, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because he ain't need it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. In the spring of 2006, New Orleans was still recovering from Hurricane Katrina. The future of the Saints' home was still even very much in doubt. Now, these weren't exactly the ain'ts of the 70s. Remember those Archie Manning days? those crowd shots of the fans with bags over their heads. But the Saints franchise from 1967 to 2005 had just seven winning seasons and just one playoff win in 39 years. Into that history stepped Sean Payton and free agent quarterback Drew Brees. Remember, Brees was coming off of a torn labrum in San Diego in 2005. He'd had surgery, which was even considered career-threatening. So there were a lot of uncertainties. I don't think either player or coach could envision the symbiotic relationship that would ensue between the two of them. Going to New Orleans, to me, that, that is a, a fascinating decision that you made. To go to, a, to a, first of all, a team that, that never won anything in a, in a disaster area. What, what about, how did you come to that decision? I mean, wasn't that a big gamble? I mean, because it's not only the team has a history and never winning. You're in the middle of a of a of a burn, an area that where it was in ruins. I I think that's a good question. I think that when the t- time came at the end of our season, I had interviewed a few years ago at Oakland, and and I felt like it wasn't the best opportunity at that time. I stayed in Dallas, but you know, it's hard. You you, you try to look at 
these opportunities and say, hey, none of them are, are going to paint the perfect picture from a standpoint. You know, they're all probably changing coaches for a reason. Yeah. I did feel like this, though. I felt like uh, the commitment was there from ownership, and I felt like the general manager, Mickey Loomis, was someone I wanted to work with. Uh, the concerns I had, though, centered around a lot of the problems maybe that existed even prior to Katrina. You know, this is an organization that hadn't won in 40 years. And, you know, Bill's advice when I went there was you need to figure out quickly what's kept that team from winning and, and change the culture if you can. So coming back home, you know, and talking to my wife about it at that time, you know, we had just built a brand new house in Dallas. I mean, yeah. just finished a new one. And the idea, you know, as we drive the car with the Paytons in it heading to New Orleans and everyone else is going the other way, and, you know, we're going to look for homes, uh, was was sometimes overwhelming. And yet, you know, you, it just felt right uh, from a standpoint of the team had just been displaced. We're coming back and really we're at rock bottom. And so uh, I thought as a as a young first year head coach, we have a chance to make a difference here. Mm -hmm. But the Green Bay interview was one I took first. And, and yeah. you know, I, I share this story with a lot of people. You, what you first may look at as where you might want to go. I mean, in Drew Brees' case, it could have been Miami rather than New Orleans. In Reggie Bush's case, it could have been the Texans, but it was New Orleans. And in my case, it could have been the Packers. It wasn't. Ted Thompson uh, was fantastic through the process, and, and they hired Mike McCarthy. And so here it was, New Orleans. And uh, it still represented a challenge and, and one in which I remember flying back from the interview with Mickey and Tom Benson and just feeling like, you know, Boy, what an impact we can make here beyond just football, and and uh, and then everything you know. But that that's unusual, I think, for for a coach to think that because most football coaches, I mean, they're 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 focused on one thing. I know in in the many years that I've dealt with them, it's the first thing is is you talk to a coach, the first thing he thinks of, well, how is this going to help me win? That's the first yeah, thing. Can I win? Yeah, can I win? Is this is this going to be an impediment to me? If this is going to help me win, I'll do it. If it isn't, then fuck it. I'll I felt like win. we had the second pick, which was important. I thought we had some players back. Uh, on both sides of the ball that gave us a chance. Um, I felt like we were at three and 13, you know, rock bottom. And I thought, you know, that, you know, we're, we're only going to get better. We can't, we can't have a, a season as bad as the season was prior for a lot of reasons. And so, you know, that's somewhat appealing. I'm, I'm a lot more appealing than taking a job over right. that just was 10 or 11 wins. So the idea of coming in and building something from the ground floor up uh, and I felt like I was ready to be a head coach. And so I know that the opportunity doesn't come around where you get to sit back and say, you know, I want that one. I don't want that one. And I'd gone through the process two years prior with the Raiders, and I felt like, you know, I, I want to do this now. And uh, maybe as, as uh, challenging as it might have seemed or appeared, there were still some things that I saw in it that that excited me. And, and the concern really was, can I get a staff here? You know, can I get a staff in place? Where are players going to be during the off season? And what's the long-term future of this team? And so I, I began to feel better about all those answers after the second time I visited with Mickey and, and Mr. Benson. And, uh, uh, but I, I can write a book on the first year, the first month of the job, you know, the different hotels we stayed in and and the, you know the the paper on the walls as they were trying to repaint the facility from when FEMA was in there and, and had taken it over and uh, trying to locate our players and you know it was different maybe the challenges that you normally would have as a first year head coach were were exaggerated or greater than what you would normally expect but it was something that we look back on and I, you know to to this day the assistants my staff and and everyone involved in putting that team together last year 
the training camp we had in Millsaps, you know, that was kind of a, we tried to treat it like a, a modern day Junction Boys where we really locked the gates there, 110 degrees and, and had, you know, really four weeks of, of tough, uh, tough football, demanding football, and one in which we found out a lot about our team and I think that served us well later on in the season. Sean, what was the toughest decision that you had to make last year? I mean, every coach is faced with decisions and that's really what shapes the season. I'll tell you a tough decision. The decision to say, hey, we're, we're signing Drew Brees. That's not an easy decision because there's an investment being made. And I know exactly what we were getting with Drew being healthy, but the concern was, is he going to be healthy? And that decision weighed heavily on our minds. We had the second pick of the draft, and we made that decision in February, right after the combine, uh, leading up into free agency. And, and it was really a year ago this weekend because he was in the first weekend of free agency that Drew came in with his wife and... We pulled the trigger and, and we made a commitment to. Had that? Did you show them around the you know New Orleans? We and took everything? them around and uh, we Somebody actually we got lost. I, I was in charge of. I had only been there about a month, and so I took Drew and Brittany over to our house on the uh, North Shore to show them you know some some home options there. Came back across the bridge and was heading back to the complex, and I hadn't taken that route before probably twice. And so now I'm a half an hour away from the complex on the cell phone. You know, we've been in the car for two hours. I'm looking and, you know, Drew's kind of dozing off and so is Brittany. And I'm thinking, this isn't going well. And I called Mickey up and said, hey, get us back to the facility. I have no idea where I'm at. And all I've seen now are these blue roofs, you know, these temporary homes, campers and everything. It was a nightmare. And so we, you know, all our free time was, was shot. You know, we were hustling Drew and his wife to the hotel. We're late for dinner. Uh, Hindsight, I'll have a driver next time. But I was the driver, I you know, not having an idea where I was going. But the decision to, to, to make and prioritize him as our quarterback, not as a player, but making sure hey, he was going to recover was a tough decision. Now, hindsight, it was the right decision. A funny story to be sure, but to hear Breeze tell it, it's even better. While driving around the ruins of New Orleans, instead of dozing off or being turned off, Breeze was inspired. He turned to his wife and they both realized the opportunity they had to make a difference in a community that had so many people let them down over the course of the previous year. And ultimately, instead of being a deterrent to sign, it became a motivating force and really was the precursor for all the amazing work that Brittany and Drew did over their 15 years there. When we come back, Peyton tells Steve how he came to play for the Chicago Bears during the 1987 players' strike plus the story of one of the most famous nights in Saints history. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower, 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because it ain't it? <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. Every player, every coach has an origin story, and Sean Payton's is pretty unique. He had a successful college career at Division II Eastern Illinois, that mini quarterback factory that has produced Tony Romo and Jimmy Garoppolo. But it's Peyton who still holds the school record for passing yards in a single game with 509. After coming out of Eastern Illinois, Peyton played for five professional teams in a two-year span, including a stint with the Leicester Panthers of the UK Budweiser National League. I'm sure you followed that team. And then in 1988, he returned to his hometown in Illinois and decided he wanted to be a coach. 1988. Naperville, Illinois. You put everything you've got in a, in a Chevy and you head west. Where are you going? San Diego State. Steve Devines, the offensive line coach. He's a scout now with the Giants. Uh, is in charge of hiring graduate assistant coaches. You know, first-time guys that are just going to go out there and break down film. And so I had a Cavalier. It broke down in Denver. And a guy, I remember on the I was going up one of these mountains and the car just said no. And the, the guy came and kind of fixed it to where I could get to San Diego, but the car wasn't fixed yet. <laughs> so uh, that got me there. And uh, I was there for two years as a graduate assistant, San Diego State, 1988 and 89. Um, here's at Sean Payton, the player. You had a one-day tryout with the Chiefs in 1987. Three weeks with Chicago of the Arena League. Correct. A whole month with the Ottawa Rough Riders. That's right. Three weeks with the Bears during the 87 strike. How come you couldn't stick with the team? I wasn't good enough. <laughs> I, I knew probably somewhere in the middle of, the, uh, uh, of Canada and the Chicago Bears that I was going to end up getting into coaching. But I, my dream was to play. And, and coming out of college, boy, you know, you want that opportunity. And, and I was lucky enough to have some chances. And, and, uh, but, but I knew in that first year that, that I was going to want to get into coaching. And then the following year, 88, was when I, when I first had that opportunity. But I met some good people along the way and, and, 
and did a lot of traveling. If, if you were going to do a, a, fill out a scouting report on Sean Payton as a player, what, what would that scouting report say? Oh, undersized, average arm, uh, fairly smart. Uh, we need better. <laughs> uh, three lines. That would be all I need to do. The 87 strike, you were on the Bears, right? Yep. That was a big deal when they came here to sure. play because you had the Teamsters and everything. Sure. What do you remember about that whole experience? What I remember, Buddy Ryan had left Chicago, if you recall, and took over the Eagles, and Dicka now was at the Bears. And so, you know, much has been said about their relationship. Obviously, they had a great run there in Chicago, but now Buddy had his team and Mike had his team. And so uh, now all of a sudden, they've got two new teams in a week to prepare. And so Mike took this game real seriously. And you could ask, but I mean, he was adamant about us going in there ready to play a football game and win this game. And we got in there on Saturday, which is pretty typical. But what happened was uh, we had a team meeting and he said the wake-up call is at 3 a.m. in the morning and the buses are leaving at 3.30, and we have cots over at the vet when you get there, and we went in before any of the, the trouble outside began. The Eagles spent the night in the vet. Our buses left at 3.30 in the morning. We got there, and we had cots at the basement of the vet. We slept on in the visitor's locker room. We got up, we had our pregame meal right down the hall somewhere. I don't know what that was, and uh, we beat the snot out of the Eagles that day, and Mike was so excited about that. I just, I always uh, remember how he felt because he felt like, you know, I've got a week with these 45 guys, you got a week with these 45 guys. Let's see who the better coach is. And he was pretty serious about that game. What was your feeling as a player? And that was the thing with the scabs and everything. What, what is In that? Chicago, it, it was, and, and I'm not naive to understand the, the, the certain lines that are drawn during something like that. But in Chicago, we probably didn't see at all the, uh, the things that we maybe saw in the news from other areas. Uh, you know, I, I remember being at home and, and our, one of our class presidents from my high school called me from CNN, Rhonda, was uh, working for CNN. She said, hey, Larry King wants to do a little uh, show with you. Uh, so I thought it was a five-minute interview. And so they send the limo to the house, and I should have figured it out at that point. We drive into Chicago, and there's Larry King. Uh, there's uh, uh, Todd Christensen. And at that time, the late Joe Robbie, all on on this hour-long show for the strike. And so here I am, you know, and now I'm in my blue sweater, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, Rhonda's going to get something out of this. This turned out to be an hour-long show dedicated CNN to the to the to the strike. But I think that uh, you know, in the end, for for us, our exposure was uh, was an opportunity. It was uh, we were you know a lot of our players were made up of the teams that were in those arena leagues or CFL, and uh, I don't think guys at all. Uh, I know my my feedback and the feeling I had in Chicago was, hey, it's an opportunity to try to uh, to try to get in the league and and. Uh, uh, I've never felt since playing in that at that time that it ever once hindered me or came back to haunt me. Not once. And uh, you know, it, there were some, some funny stories. So, oh, there's amazing stories. You know, we, where we stayed at the hotel, getting the offense. I mean, Ed Hughes was the coordinator, and he, he was signaling everything in, and it was like foreign. You know, and you you know, within two weeks, you're playing a game, and I remember the whole game plan sitting on a laminated sheet. Mike Owensy and I staying up late trying to remember it, and uh, you know, just feeling like you know, in a short period of time, hey, we're just winging it here, you know, in regards to the quarterback. Because you, you, at that position, you want to have a pretty good handle on what you're doing. But, 
but it was it was uh, it was exciting, and we beat Philadelphia. We beat Minnesota, I think, uh, and then we lost to the Saints. And half their defense had come back. And the very last game I played in was an interception. The last pass, it was an interception to the to my left. I don't know who it was that picked it off, but it was a Saint defender. He took a knee, and that was it for my career. And uh, uh, I knew it was time to coach. Now I wanted to get back to just a few more questions about your coaching style, and that there. There's two different types of coaching where you have Parcells is one, on one side, Lombardi's on that side, and then there's another side. And it's, it's the theory that you criticize privately and you praise publicly. What side do you see that you I, feel? I'm, you know, it, a, it would seem to me that, 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 that you're on the Parcellian side. I'm not side. afraid of go, going over that line. Yeah. I mean, I, I, now I, don't, I have to be myself. But I think it's important that, uh, again, that you're, con- you know, you confront the things that you don't like. When they happen. When they happen. And, and not worry about a player's feelings. I think when the player sees that it, it, it crosses the board with everyone, including the coaches, then that's easier to swallow and accept. Uh, and so, you know, it could be the quarterback. And, and you know, you're, you're sending a message not to him but to everyone else in the offense. You don't like what's going mm-hmm. on. But uh, but that's such a fascinating part of the profession is that is that because I think in today's culture coaches in the NFL are at a, at a very unique position of leadership because you have to make decisions in front of millions of people you have the sports opinion industry and radio now is do you have a, do you have a show like that in New Orleans where they second guess sure. every decision you make and sure I, and and you know you're 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 in an environment now that they can they can reference each play in a game oh, unbelievable. You know, the, we, we played the Eagles, and we played the Eagles in the playoff game this past year, and, and got the ball with about four and a half, five minutes left in the game. Had a good drive going, and had a chance maybe to close out the game. And we ran this little flip play, which was a short yardage play to Reggie Bush, and he dropped it. And now, you know, your heart drops, and you think, "My gosh, we, we're going to lose this game." And and that play is going to be something that we we, we never. It's going to be with us forever. And fortunately, you know, defensively, we came out and stopped him, but. Uh, you know, you get graded each week, and uh, that's exciting, though. And, and, you know, I think the ability to digest the wins quickly and not eat the cheese and get on to the next week and the ability to digest the losses and everything that goes with the losses, that ability is critical. And, 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 and keeping the team from being divided when you go through those tough periods in the season is critical. The one part of Peyton's journey to the Saints that we haven't talked about is his four-year stretch with the New York Giants, which included three years as offensive coordinator under head coach Jim Fossil and general manager Ernie Accorsi. In 2000, Peyton led a Giants offense that trounced the Vikings in the NFC Championship game 41 to nothing, ultimately losing in the Super Bowl to one of the greatest defenses of all time, the Ray Lewis-led Ravens. Apparently, Peyton made an impression on Bill Parcells. In fact, over the years, I've actually talked to Parcells about this. And he told me that Chris Mara from the Giants was a longtime friend who called Bill and said that he thought it would be a good match with this young coach with lots of enthusiasm, Sean Payton. Parcells told me they didn't know each other, but after a few conversations, he offered him the job. But let's hear Sean tell it. When you were calling plays for the Giants, you went to the Super Bowl, right? Yeah. Then was it two years later that you got stripped of that Responsibility. Yeah. Midway through the season of 2002, you know, Jim had been someone who, who used to call the plays. 
and he wanted to he wanted to get back in it, and he wanted to be more involved in it. And but that must have been devastating. Oh, it to was. Your, it mean, was to your self confidence. I mean, this it, is what you do well, and all of a sudden, here's somebody saying, "Hey, Sean, you know." It was. Up. It was certainly one of those times in your career where you, you, you look at, you know, how are you going to handle this? Uh, and the fact of the matter is, we had a pretty good team. We lost some tough games, uh, and. You know, I, I think the most important thing was that, you know, I was continuing on as the coordinator. We were still putting the game plans together the same way. And I wasn't going to let this interfere with the success we were going to have as a team. And we were able to get into the playoffs. We lost in the first round. But uh, it was it was at that time where, you know, it tests you a little bit, you know. And, and if you ask this of your players sometimes, uh, and, and it happens with players where all of a sudden, hey, we're, we're going to go with this quarterback rather than this one mm -hmm. because we feel like right now it's going to help the team. Then certainly uh, if that's the case in, in the head coach's mind and the decision he made, then you have to support it. So uh, fortunately, after that season, the phone call came from Parcells. And I'd never met him before, but it was Christmas Day. And, uh, and, and that, that was when I had the first chance mm -hmm. to visit with him about going to Dallas. What was the first questions? Parcells asked. It was you. that nebulous. I might be. In, I might have a job. Well, everyone had known. You know, he had already met with Jerry at Teterboro at the airport, and so I. Hey, at the, I was still under contract with the Giants, and it was going to be. I have to. I would have had to have been able to get a release, from Ernie and ownership, and and to this day I'm grateful for that because they gave me that when the season ended. I went in to see Ernie. When we were just talking about this this time, and Ernie was fantastic. I went in to see Mr. Mara. And, uh, and I talked with Jim, and they agreed to give me permission for two weeks uh, if another coordinator's job but came Par open. Did Parcells take you in front of a blackboard and have you done We never right? interviewed. No, he called me over the phone. It was the first I'd ever spoken to Bill. It was on it was Christmas so Day. So he was going by what he saw. He had, and he had a few people that he knew in New York and, and some, some people close to the Giants that he trusted. And uh, then he called me after that playoff loss, and then... Uh, it wasn't until, you know, when I got the permission, we really couldn't talk about the job until after I got the release from the Giants. And at that point, he said, hey, here's the job. How much you want to make? And uh, I'll meet you at Republic Airport in Long Island Friday, and we're going to Dallas. And the two of us met there for the first time, and, and we got on Jerry's plane, and, and he got out a napkin. He started drawing in the offense, and we landed in Dallas, and there, and there we were. But it was the two of us flew into Dallas. That's the first time I met him. Going through last season. Were you aware of what an incredible story that was unfolding with the Saints? I mean, could you see beyond this is just more than just a turnaround of a team? This, this is a story that's going to be told by NFL films for the next 50 years, long after you and I are gone. Could you sense what you were part of, what you were I, leading, actually? I think, I think after that third win, you know, what was important for us is we got off to a good start. We won a couple of road games. We beat Cleveland to start the year. And then we went up to Green Bay, fell behind, and then came back. And, you know, we have a young team. And, and when you look at the Cleveland Browns and the Green Bay Packers and the New Orleans Saints, all, you know, all three of those teams are trying to find themselves. In other words, none of us had had winning seasons the year before. And so the margin of error in those three games was slight. It was very small. And we came back to beat Green Bay, which put us – at home now for the opening game in the Superdome Monday night against a 2-0 Atlanta Falcon team. And so that was the first small stage of what was to be a, a good year. And, and But it was only going to be a special night if we won the game. And we talked about that. In other words, it was the first game back in the Dome. It had been rebuilt. 
It was Monday night football, prime time. They had U2. I mean, it was like a Super Bowl. And yet it was only going to be special if we won it. And that night we played very well. Uh, it was an amazing scene there if you were there. Just the, the, the noise level and the emotions that went into that stadium being opened again after everything had gone on. And it was that night after the win to go 3-0 and that you realized what could be on the horizon if we continue to play well. And, and I think then, fortunately, we were able to put more wins together. And the fans reminded you of it all the time. Now, as a coach, you're, you're a little bit sheltered because you're in in the morning early and you're home at night. But uh, I don't think any one of us uh, had our head in the sand and didn't see what was taking place in the city. Do you remember any kind of like personal vignettes as like I said, someone comes up to you when, when you're, you're getting your car filled up with gas or you're in a supermarket or something that that's one of those moments will probably stay with you the rest of your life. I, I remember in the summertime, it was July, the season hadn't started yet. And, you know, the Saints are coming back and playing the, the season in the Dome. And I remember going to a Kenny Chesney concert in, in New Orleans. He was playing, uh, I want to say it was the first week of July. And I remember waiting in line and, and a fan coming up to me who had just purchased four season tickets. And now this, this was unique because at this time was really the first time the Dome had ever sold out. The Saints sold, we sold the season out before it started. So, you know, here it was in July and, 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 and we, we've sold out. And a lot had to do with that, the acquisition of Breeze and Bush. And, and there was momentum, I think, and a feeling of, hey, this team is, is uh, doing the right things. So this fan came up to me and he said, Coach, I just want you to know I just bought four season tickets. Uh, I'm living still in my trailer. I don't have a job yet. I don't know how I'm going to pay for these tickets. But we can't wait to see you guys play. And I'll never forget looking at him and thinking to myself, you know, here's a guy that just went out and, and made a decision, you know, regardless of whether I have cable TV or I can afford the electric bill, I'm buying four season tickets. And that type of story uh, happened often then. You know, once the season began, you know, the, 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 the different times we had to interact with the fans, you know, there was a period in the season we had two or three kids come in from Make-A-Wish Foundation or local kids who were struggling, uh, young kids that came with their parents and watched Friday's practice and that were guests of ours on game day and we gave them a game ball in the locker, locker room afterwards. Uh, it just took on, uh, the, the success took on uh, a whole new thing that I hadn't been exposed to as a coach and nothing that you got into coaching for uh, because it became more than just the winning and more than just the Saints. It became the region, it became the city it became something I think for them to look forward to, you know, to to do on the weekends, and then to talk about on Monday and Tuesday. And as that momentum continued to to uh, gain strength, it, by the end of the year, with the with the second seed, you know, we had beaten Dallas in a big game on Sunday night, and and we were competing at that time with Dallas for that second seed. Chicago had pretty much locked up the first seed, but it happened almost on a weekly basis at a restaurant in a supermarket where someone. It started with. My dad had tickets when they opened up at Tulane Stadium, or we saw Dempsey's record-setting kick. It would start, you know, I've had, I've had a million of those, you know, where I was at Tulane and I've never seen this ever from a Saints team. And then, you know, to, to get to an NFC Championship game, which was the first for that organization, uh, it was amazing the impact it had. And, and to this day, you know, when, when we go out, it's hard. It's difficult because it's, uh, the people are so excited about 
not only the accomplishments of last year, but the direction we're going next year and, and in the future. All right. Good stuff. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure. Perfect. Good Perfect. stuff. Three years after this interview was done, Sean Payton and the Saints won Super Bowl 44 over Peyton Manning and the Colts. Now, you may recall at the beginning of this interview how Peyton talked about his aggressiveness. Well, remember, he opened the second half with an onside kick, one of the boldest moves in Super Bowl history, especially since it actually worked. (laughs) Equally memorable, but for far different reasons, was the first game back in the Superdome in 2006. In fact, the one play that Peyton did not mention was the blocked punt against the Falcons by Steve Gleason. In fact, in 2012, a statue was erected outside the Superdome with the inscription, Rebirth, commemorating that play. In the years since that game, Gleason has become a symbol of hope and strength for the entire city as he heroically, and I do not use that word loosely, heroically continues to battle ALS. Sean Payton coached 15 seasons in New Orleans, and as we speak, he might be headed to a year in the broadcast booth. And next week, we bring you Steve Sable's 2008 interview with the broadcasting GOAT, one of my dearest friends, one of the all-time great football voices, Al Michaels. I hope you'll join us because I am so excited to bring you this interview. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Kramer. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.